Welcome to the Philippe Matthews Show at thepmshow.tv. Named the Oprah of the Internet by Mark Victor Hansen, Philippe Matthews doesn't ask questions that are different. He simply asks questions that make a difference. The Philippe Matthews Show features entertainers, bestsellers, authors, thought leaders, change agents, and world-class experts in the field of personal, spiritual, and professional development. An internet marketing entrepreneur, Philippe is the creator of the How Movement, dedicated to teaching people how to move from the mindset of hope to the process of how. If you are ready to take your life to the next level, move from the mindset of why to the mindset of why not. Tune in right now to this latest edition of the Philippe Matthews Show and watch your life grow. Known worldwide as America's number one female Latin comedian, Monique Marvez is a self-made businesswoman who first rose within the retail cosmetics and later healthcare industry while simultaneously building a career through the difficult world as a writer and stand-up performer. Now, when her stand-up was able to sustain her, she went into the entertainment business full-time and within a short while, she had her first tele- television deal with none other than Barry Diller's Silver King Productions. I want to first say, hey, honey, how are you? Thank you for being on my show. Well, I'm very grateful, and uh, and i got to tell you, that's my bio, and every word of it's true. <laughs> because I wouldn't lie, except one thing that isn't true. said when I could sustain my comedy career, I quit my day job as a medical malpractice uh, salesperson. Um, and that is not true. I actually was an idiot. I, uh, I quit. I quit my day job where I was making almost six figures in my late 20s to become a stand-up comedian and immediately drop below the total ghetto poverty line. So, uh, so I don't even for one second want people to think like, oh, this girl's got it going on. She went straight from you know successful businesswoman into you know, comedy mogul, because it's not that way. For 28 months, I didn't even have a home. I put all my stuff in storage and basically crashed at friends' houses and ate tons of ramen noodles, which no one should do because they've got lots of sodium. Oh, my God. So you did have that, uh, as they say, that uh, uh, comedic struggle in the, in, the, in the lean years. What do you mean they had? I mean, entertainment is cyclical. One of, you know, I I would I would get a great deal like when Barry King, you know, uh, Barry Diller took me to Miami for Silver King, mm-hmm. and then you know we launched uh, a late night, you know, just local stuff in Miami. It was in Miami. It was hyper local television, and we launched some some stuff in Miami, and it went well. And I had two good specials, and you know, it was it was wonderful. Ladies Ing the Blues and Monique over Miami, and it was a wonderful experience. But here's the deal. When when my contract ended, you know, I was very far from home because even though I was raised in Miami, I had at this point made L.A. my home. Mm. So I was kind of stranded back in my hometown with no means to get back to the place where I needed to be for my business. And, uh, you know, and, and we won't even get into my personal life because that was a who shot John. But, uh, but you know, I mean, these these situations when they're not when they're marginal, you know, I mean, when you get a deal, look, if, if you're a big shot and you get a sitcom and you get sitcom money for a couple of years, if you play your cards right, you're set, you know. But these sort of startup shows or your first year on on a cable show, I mean, people think, oh, you're on TV, you're making a lot of money, and that is not even remotely true. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
That's not right. remotely true. So when that deal went under, I went back to being a road comic and counting my pennies and lying to uh, to Capital One and you know all the good stuff. It's uh, stealing from Peter to pay my sprint bill. So all of that uh, is what they say uh, character building and gives you great material when you stand up in front of an audience. Well, yeah, well it all it all sucks. But, <laughs> but, my, but my worst day as a comic, my worst day as a comic was better than my best day selling insurance. Wow, and that's a true thing. How, oh, yeah. how proud my, is that? Wow. Well, it's the truth. My worst day as a comic, because here's the thing. I just came up with this this morning. I was I, I get up every morning and I journal, and that's kind of my way of praying. Like I kind of tell God, like, what do you want me to do today? Mm-hmm. You know, because you know, I mean, He always has a better job for me than my job. My job's kind of dumb, you know, write some jokes or whatever. And then, but then He gives me a better job and tells me, and when you're done with that job, write some jokes. And you know, my whole life I'd always say how lucky I am and how my life is a series of fortuitous flukes and then mm-hmm. people give me the old you know, the old, you know, well you know what luck is. Luck is when hard work meets opportunity. I'm like, All right, I like that formula, that's good because I do work hard and when an opportunity appears, okay, that's luck. I like that formula. But lately I've been saying, Okay, that formula got me here. But sometimes what got you here won't get you there. Absolutely. So I said, Okay, God, do do I need a new formula? And and he said, oh, yeah, and here it is, purposeful preparation, not just hard work, purposeful preparation meets opportunity is magic. Mm, I love that. And I like, well, yeah, I, I like magic so much better than luck. I love magic. Absolutely. Magic makes Disneyland. Magic makes DreamWorks. Magic makes Pixar. Magic makes... I said, I, I don't want to just be a comedian. I don't want to just be a writer-performer. I want to do something magical. Mm-hmm. So so that's what I'm operating now. I'm with purposeful preparation meets opportunity. And, 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 and a lot of... I'm holding up the purposeful preparation part, and, uh, and, and Providence is holding up the, the opportunity part. Fantastic. Take me back a little bit, Monique, and, 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 and share with me and us, uh, the listeners, what sparked your interest in becoming a comic? I mean, when did you decide to say, you know what, I think I'm a little funny here. I think I might want to pursue this as a career. What was that process for you? Well, here's the funny part. I'm not even remotely funny. I'm uh <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah, right. I, and and funny dumb. It's a dumb thing to do. Um for as a girl. For a lot of reasons. And and there's a reason why a lot of female comedians wear comfortable shoes if you get my drift. Um, because it's a very masculine in your face business. Men you know, a joke, the key to comedy is brevity. And brevity means you have to decide. You have to decide the joke, you have to decide the punchline, you have to decide it quickly. These are not female traits. Women tend to be slower and and uh, passive aggressive and a little bit more indecisive and you know so comedy is counterintuitive to femininity. Mm, fascinating. And, and in a lot of that's why so many men say women aren't funny because a lot of you know straight gals aren't that funny because they're bringing they're doing one of two things which for me personally doesn't work and one of them is they try to be more shocking than the men. Um, you know, just really filthy, shocking, and that works, you know, for one or two people. I mean, that works for Lisa Lampanelli. It works for Sarah Silverman. It works brilliantly for them. would not work for me at all. Um, I would always feel like I need to gargle and bathe after every show. And, um, 
And the other thing that women do is try to bring an entirely feminine perspective, like a gay comic that every single thing, every joke hinges on them being gay. Women have to bring the beleaguered, you know, my husband is a pain in the ass because, I hate getting, you know, my menstrual cycle because, my kids don't appreciate me because, and, and that's kind of downtrodden. That's kind of a, a downward turn kind of comedy. Again, works brilliantly for some people, certainly didn't hurt, you know, Irma Bombeck, who wasn't a stand-up but a, a brilliant uh, writer mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. satirist. But that, again, not my point of view. Number one, I can't seem to sustain a marriage, so I can't really complain about that. <laughs> um, number two, I don't have any children. And number three, I really don't think discussing bodily functions on stage is where I, I want to go. Sure, um, sure. So, so I have to, you know, I, I've had to navigate a, a lot of trip wires because I've kind of forced myself to think outside of the female comedian box. A lot of times people go, it must be so hard to be a female comedian. It's like, well, I don't know what it's like to be a male comedian. I really didn't have the option. <laughs> you know, and I'm not even being a smart aleck. I mean, that's my true answer. It's like I, I've, I, I've played the cards that were dealt me in the way that I thought I could win. Mm-hmm. So when was that decision for you? When did you make that decision to say? Uh, well, when I actually started doing stand-up, you know, I made a decision how I was going to deliver my stand-up. I never made the conscious decision. I just, I just, it, it happened. Um, well, first of all, I, I have to admit I've always, I've always used comedy as a defense mechanism. My dad was manic depressive, and I think that parents sort of develop in their children that which is potentially missing in their own lives. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you got a depressed dad and, you know, and a little girl figures out, hey, if I can make him laugh, it's going to be a better day for both of us. So I honed that skill. I never knew that you could make a living at it or that, I mean, I, I saw Carol Burnett when I was a little girl, but I was like, I didn't know how she got that gig. But, uh... But once I figured out that being quick-witted was sort of masculine and boys didn't like it, I was like, well, look, I've already got glasses and braces and about 20 extra pounds. I don't need this. This is not helping my cause. So I never consciously made the decision until uh, one day I was laying in bed with a fever and I was reading, you know, uh, the Miami Herald, and it showed Sam Kinison coming out of the arena with two big blonde women. And and I was, you know, I was divorced and, and fired, and my card had been repoed, and I just thought, if that big, ugly, you know, part of my French, this is literally what went through my head, if that big, fat, ugly bastard is getting rich and laid, uh, you know, at that point I was at my wit's end, and I right. knew that people pay, you know, like 50 bucks for open mic or whatever. I literally went into it thinking if I could make an extra couple of hundred dollars a month, I might, you know, this might work out. I had no idea how fast the trajectory or how well, maybe if I'd have bombed the first night or something, but the guy came over to me after the first night and said, you know, how long have you been doing this? I said, I'm, I was the girl on the phone. I was the open mic girl that asked you how to do this. Wow. Oh, yeah, I just called from my... From How my amazing is that? Yeah, I was just reading the Miami Herald because I had the flu, and I and I, I was in bed with a cold, and I called the, the local comedy club and said, how do you do comedy? I mean, I was that ignorant. I'd never... I wasn't a comedy groupie. I didn't go to comedy clubs. I, other than Carol Burnett and Laugh-In, that was it. Um, and some Woody Allen movies. Yeah, I wasn't like a stand-up groupie at all. And... Um, 
And then, actually, my, my childhood sweetheart and first husband was. He had Rodney Dangerfield and, and uh, Richard Pryor on record albums. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't, you know, we never talked about me being a comedian or me being even funny. Wow. I was in retail. That's not funny. No, retail is not funny. <laughs> Heck no, there's nothing funny about being behind the SD lottery counter when a beast walks up. <laughs> so, did you come from a big family? Or what, what, what part of nope. where did you come from? Where were you born? Uh, no, well, surprisingly enough, I'm Hispanic, and there's three of us, and we were planned. We're exactly three years apart. My dad's an architect. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, my brothers and I are three years apart, and... Um, and you know, and I and I had a pretty normal middle class upbringing. My dad was an architect, and my mother, you know, uh, became a nurse and got a master's in hospital administration. The only weird thing about my family, and everybody always diminishes because within my existence, I looked at people with really horrible, you know, childhoods. And my parents didn't drink, they didn't smoke, they didn't do drugs, but they were multiple marriers. My dad got married five times. Wow. My mother four. They married each other twice. My uh, second stepfather turned gay, and my second stepmother was a retired Mexican hooker who evidently was the Brett Favre of Coochie and could not stay retired. So when is the reality show coming on? <laughs> no reality. But, yeah, I, I moved. Like, I had 40 different addresses by the time I was 27. You could do a treatment for that right there, uh, uh, Monique, and, and, and just retire. I'm sure that is, that is a great, great uh, uh, show. Every word of it's true. I I, um, I went to three elementaries, one junior high, and four high schools. Oh my God! I mean, yeah. No, well, I. Yeah, so that was a challenge, and I think yeah. that's one of the reasons that I I speak quickly and try to connect because I was always, you know, at the bottom of the heap as the new girl. So I learned that being quick, not just quick-witted, but quick you know, swift on the uptake and figured out who's who in the zoo were skill sets that I needed to prevail. So what did you learn uh, about yourself uh, as you, you know, uh, uh, paddled through uh, and waded through this this uh, comedic career? You know, who who did you have to become that, uh, that you weren't before? And what have you learned about, about yourself? Well... Here's the funny thing. Uh, God will trick you, and he will win <laughs> because he's part of and, and comedy was a big, giant trick um, because I was, I was a smart girl with an intention to do good and didn't even know how, you know, since I was a little girl. You know, I've always just wanted to, to make a difference in the world. And, and uh, comedy, A, it, it sort of was my water wings, you know, like, like if my childhood, you know, parts of my childhood were swimming in very murky, nasty water, mm-hmm. then comedy was my water wings that kept my head above all of that. And everything was recycled, you know, everything that was painful or difficult from my younger years instantly became material. And I was like, oh, well, this is good. Um, and then on top of that, um, it gave me an enormous amount of self-confidence to do other things. Like I, I would have never been able to, you know, let's just suppose I was a writer and I went to film school and I learned how to be a writer, you know. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have the confidence that when, you know, Dick Wolf and NBC tap you and say, would you like to write a sitcom, you're going to say yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I have plenty of friends that have wonderful educations in Los Angeles that, are writer's assistants or not even, you know? So so God handed me the very thing I needed 
to, to build my confidence, to create ideas, to trust my own mind. Um, you know, everything, he handed me an education that had nothing to do with, with school. And, and comedy's been my education that's allowed me to, when somebody says, can you do that? Yeah. And they're like, well, how do you know? It's like, because I'm a stand-up. Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of credibility, and it's a lot of, I mean, think about it. Think about the education of people like Ray Romano or Bill Cosby. I don't know what their educations are, but I know that they've been given doctorates in, in a sense, you know, after the fact. And, um, you know, and, and, and even Jim Carrey never graduated high school, but I assure you he knows how to navigate a $20 million contract. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. It tests you in a way that very few things on earth can do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, there's less successful stand-ups than there are NFL football players. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's an elite group. Absolutely. So we're so, kind of mental athletes. So would you consider yourself more of a writer than a performer or, or both? It's, it started out being more of a performer, and then it started to, and then again, he always gives you what you need. I became a, I went on the radio, and that made me discipline myself because I had to prepare my shows. And and over time, you know, the ante just keeps ratcheting up, and I got the television deal, and then now I've got a book deal. So as I've honed my skills, it's funny because, there's three things that always happen in my life. Once I get a house exactly the way I want it, I get a new gig and I leave. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm, I love, you know, my, my condo in San Diego, so I'm pretty sure I'm going to get another job soon. And, <laughs> and, and whenever my life becomes pretty easy and I can just, you know, there were years where as a comedian I was just, I had anniversary dates. Like there were clubs that always booked me, you know, Valentine's or always booked me you know, the second week of June or whatever, mm -hmm. and my career became pretty easy of just renewing my standard dates. And as soon as that got easy, then I got radio. Mm -hmm. So whenever my life gets kind of simple, you know, then he's like, okay, I can speed it up a little bit. I can speed up the treadmill. And since I believe everything's an answer to a prayer, I must have asked for a really busy, cool life. Yeah, obviously. Tell me about uh, radio. How did that come about? That was a complete fluke. I... um. I was on at a, I was a guest at a radio station, and they kept saying, "How do we set you up to be funny?" And I said, "Don't, just do your thing, and I'll jump in." Mm -hmm. And they said, "Well, you know, we we're going to do the news now." And I'm like, "All right, just do the news, and I'll jump in." And I think they were nervous because they like it better than like, "Do you want us to ask you about your grandma?" And it's like, "No, don't ask me about my grandma. Just do your thing." <laughs> so. It was back in the summer of 2003, mm -hmm. and they were talking about Scott Peterson being indicted. And I said, he's guilty. He's guilty as hell. And the woman looks at me in the middle of the news story, and she's like, well, how do you know? I mean, we all assume that, but how do you know? I said, when a man gives away a woman's jewelry, he knows she's dead, mm -hmm. <laughs> which she had done. He had given away her right. jewelry. I'm like, you know she's not coming back, or you wouldn't even take a chance, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? So they looked at me, and they kind of thought it was funny, but then they are also like, well, that's kind of smart. Mm -hmm. And I went on and said a few other comments like that. Well, the hotline, and some of them were kind of strong. And then the hotline rings, and the guy that was manning the board, uh, you know, running the board, and he answered the hotline. Well, it was the program director. The woman that I was on the air with, who was a very sweet woman but kind of high-strung, when a commercial break came, she looks at the producer, and she said, what is it about? Are we in trouble? 
And he's like, no. Is it about somebody in the room? Well, there's only three of us. He says, yes. She goes, is it about her? And he says, yes. And she said, what is it? And he said, that's the program director. And he said not to leave her, let her leave the building until he could talk to her. Wow. And he took me to Starbucks on Monument Circle in Indianapolis, and he said, uh, Surely my life couldn't be so easy that I could hire you and you'd take the job. And I said, don't call me Shirley, and how much are you going to pay me? Wow. And that's literally how that's I got how my first That's how it started, huh? Job. That's it. It was a fluke. How many years were you in radio? Uh, up until last year, I did it for seven years. I wow. did uh, two years in Indy, yeah. And then I did uh, four plus, you know, I, I did roughly like two here, a gap and four in uh, San Diego. So, you know, obviously, I first saw you um, <clears throat> on Comics Unleashed, uh, Byron Allen's Comics Unleashed. That was, uh, He's something a dear I, man. Yeah, I, 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 it's something I, I absolutely give myself every night because uh, I love comedy. I love comedians. I love the art. I love the discipline. And uh, I've loved Byron Allen for, for decades. And He's a cool dude. Yeah, and, and so I tape it. And uh, watch, you know, two or three shows at a time. And so here I am sitting, you know, uh, watching the show, and, uh, uh, you know, he introduces you, and then you come on, and, he, you know, he gives you the lead, and then you, you, you come on and you talk about your dad, actually, in terms of, I think it was like a, uh, something about, you know, your dad uh, threw up on Sammy Davis Jr. No, he didn't throw up. He blew his nose on him. He blew his nose on him. And not exactly. Not exactly. And the whole funny story was I was reminding Byron that I saw him. He used to be on this show many, many years ago. I, I don't know if it was called That's Incredible or Real or Real People or something. But it was, it was a people. show many, yeah, many, many years ago. Yeah. And he was opening for Sammy in Vegas. And he was like 19 years old. My goodness. And he was the opening. Yeah, he was the opening act, and he was absolutely awful. I mean, I didn't even know comedy at the time, but I knew this isn't how it's supposed to look. <laughs> and, uh, and my dad had bought tickets to, to Caesars, and here it's a big deal. You know, I graduated high school. And, um, and my dad, um, you know, greased the guy at Caesars so he could sit right up front. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I'm super excited, so I'm up front. And um, and Sammy, my dad is, as I told you earlier, my dad, as I told you earlier, is manic depressive. Mm -hmm. And and Sammy goes into this incredibly soulful, just just beautiful rendition. He he kind of pulls up his pants leg so he can you know get close to the front of the stage and mm -hmm. you know and and he's singing what kind of fool am I? And my dad doesn't my dad doesn't cry like, you know, a little bit of red eye, he starts crying like a woman at the end of Love Story when, when Ryan O'Neill's talking to his dad, like <laughs> racking, heaving, crazy ass, like that kind of crying where your whole right. body's shaking. And, I mean, and Sammy, I, I want the ground to swallow me, I want Sammy to ignore it, I, I want everything to end. But Sammy <laughs> crouches down even lower and hands my dad his arm and says, um, Feeling it with you, brother. And that's just, I mean, he didn't officially, like, wipe his nose on Sammy's sleeve. But I think it's that part. You know when you lose, you cry so hard, you lose all control, like, you yeah. know, like, earwax shoots out or something? <laughs> yeah. like, 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 we 
he walked through the casino and people were pointing and saying, like, that's the man. That's oh, the my God. Oh, my God. Oh, gosh. yeah, people were pointing. Like, oh, Lord. Oh, yeah, it was horrible. <laughs> well, it was that story when you shared that on that show. That's what I said. I want to meet Monique Marvez. She is a genius <laughs> in storytelling. <laughs> Because that's, I mean, that's an art. It's a gift. I'm not that great at storytelling. I think I'm great with one-liners or just, you know, uh, having a little quick, I'm quick-witted. But there's something about storytellers, like, you know, like a Bill Cosby or someone. That just amazes me. And you told the story, and it's a true story, and it was absolutely hilarious. Thank you. Well, I think the key to good storytelling, quite frankly, is I just think you don't have a jacked up enough crew of, crew of people around you. Like, <laughs> I mean, really, I mean, who can mess that story up? Like, you, like anyone can tell that story and it'd be funny, you know? I, I think Richard Nixon could have told that one and got a laugh. <laughs> now, now, so here's the thing. You're, you're funny, you're smart, and you're beautiful. A lot of people, oh, when wow. they first see you, as I did on the show, I'm like, whoa, she is a looker. I mean, really. So how do you balance those three elements, being funny, smart, and beautiful in Hollywood, in well, Hollywood business? Well, number one, thank you so much for thinking that I'm attractive because I was a hideous monkey child. And, um, <laughs> I have a giant drag queen head, which is good in Hollywood. Evidently, oh. big heads are good for television because I've always had, like, I've always, I looked 30 when I was 12, and then I caught up with myself, and I've always looked the same. So now I'm over 30, and, you know, and, and I'm still managing with my giant drag queen head. But, um, <laughs> But, but the thing is, you know, I, I met some really cool people from, from Virgin Produce one night. The, mm -hmm. the, the crew came out, and the guy, this young man, Rene Regal, so nice, he came over to me and literally said, you know, please tell me you're a writer because your entire act was a giant run-on sentence with no punctuation that I just adored. <laughs> and I said, yes, I am a writer, and I showed him my journal, which I had in my purse, and and he's like, you're so smart. And, and he was like you. He's like, you're smart and attractive. And I said, look, let me just be very blunt with you. And he was so nice, you know. He was, he was super nice. And um, I said, here's the bottom line. I'm very, very grateful that God made me smart and homely because over time, you know, smart can figure out a way to buy and create and conjure beauty. Mm -hmm. But but stupid, you know, stupid and beautiful can never buy smart. Like, you can't add RAM to the computer, That's you know? Right. That's right. Nice, nice. Very well said. So I'm super grateful that I've been able to conjure through, you know, fitness. I mean, I've got to watch what I eat. Like, most, some girls can eat whatever they want, and they don't ever gain a pound. And you're always reading, like, Charlize Theron going, like, I go to bed with a full face of makeup, and I never work out, and whenever I'm not drinking red wine or eating bonbons, I like a nice prime rib, you know, and I'm like, die, die, Charlize Theron, because, you know, I, if I eat three strawberries in rapid succession, my genes don't fit, but... But I, you know, but I'm willing to make those sacrifices. I'm willing to do what it takes to conjure attractiveness, you know, uh, because it's 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 necessary. You know, people people aren't going to take the gift if the box is really super ugly. And I like to think that I have a nice gift. You do. You have a great gift, and you have a brilliant mind. What wakes you up in the morning, though? What motivates you to continue to do what you do? Well, it's so funny you should say that because there's that moment in half sleep before you're completely awake. 
and I've cultivated myself that I don't push myself out of that space as quickly as some people would. Over the years, I've learned to sort of lay there in that state and see what trickles down onto me, you know, whether the voice talks to me or I get a feeling or something from a dream lingers a little longer. And basically every morning I get out of bed because there's a combination of, you know, those factors, whatever the ether is kind of keeping me wrapped in, and my dog scratching the side of the bed because he has to use a restroom. And that's the most perfect, perfect combination to get out of bed because it's always love. It's, it's love of my dog. It's love of the day. It's love of whatever's still lingering around me. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then I, I move through my day and just try to use that as my true north, as my compass. You know, what do I love? And I love being a comic, and I love being a writer, and I love being a consultant. You know, my friends call me for content and questions and stuff to put on their website and wordplay and, you know, and I've started a whole ancillary business of helping my friends with sort of non-traditional marketing and and now people are, my friends are recommending me and it's becoming a business. So aside from being a writer-performer, I'm helping good products get seen by more people by adding the, sort of using the enter and entertainment to draw people into, into their world. Well, well, speaking of that, your biweekly uh, satirical column for the Philippe Matthews Show on the e-pages of our show, uh, it launched as number one and stayed number one for an entire week uh, uh, in, in April, you know, 2011. Here, you are H O T. You are hot. Thank you. you Thank you. Well, I, I understand things. You, you wrote know, this column. You wrote this column called Cash Cashine, and you can explain it more than than uh, I'm explaining it. But Cashine, uh, which was, of course was a, a play on words with Charlie Sheen. Talk to us about mm-hmm. th- that process, that brilliant process of how you saw uh, Charlie Sheen and social media. Well, well, here's the the part of the whole thing that fascinated me was that. Somebody managed to create profit from from a nervous breakdown. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally from somebody going off the rails. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's not the first time it had been done because there's a lot of movies about people going off the rails because it's an interesting concept. Mm-hmm. Whether it's falling down with Michael Douglas or Network, um, for which he won the Oscar uh, posthumously for acting like a lunatic. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Finch did, but but. To have a real human being in real time having a dialogue with the world and and losing his biz, somebody at Live Nation said this is a tour. And it was like mental NASCAR because people just wanted to be there to see if the wheel would fly off of Charlie's mind in person. Mm-hmm. And and you know, whatever Charlie was doing, the, the the cocaine or the or the goddesses or the fact that they could brand Tiger Blood and winning, duh, and all of that so quickly through the use of social media. He got a he got a million dollar endorsement from Twitter. Well, for what? What did Twitter need more users? Yeah, I mean, I don't even understand. But it's sort of like like the tulip bulbs in Holland. You know, at some point people convince you you got to have them, and then people are like, "Oh my goodness, I'm going to trade my house for a tulip bulb." Mm-hmm. If you know anything about financial history, but but Charlie Sheen, while he was coming unglued for that moment in time, I mean, now we all know he's basically begging for his job back. He's lost the goddess. He doesn't know what to do. The tour was a failure. But for the first, you know. 
between March the 5th and April the 5th, a lot of crazy things occurred that would require a lot of sane people to try to figure out how to make money and capitalize off of this insane person insanity. Sure. And, and to, you know, it's, it was the ultimate 3D reality show is the way I see it. I and like that. I like that. That's true. It, it, it's what it, it took what was already going, like, doesn't everybody love Big Brother or, you know, the, the surreal life or get me out of here? I'm a, some people love seeing Vern Troyer, you know, fall off his tricycle or, or you know, be buck naked and inebriated and, and relieving himself in the corner. This time we got to see it in 3D in real time and, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's, it's, it's fascinating to me. I, I wonder at what point as a nation we'll look away. We'll just say, you know what, I, I really don't feel good about myself looking at this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But there's money to be made in that. And, and, and I'm sure this is not the first time this will ha- you know, the last time that this will happen. Uh, unfortunately, um, it won't be. That's just the way of the world. Uh, I mean, we, I'm sure Andy Dick is jealous that he wasn't more famous. You yeah, know, we Dick saw it. Uh, we saw it happen with Britney Spears. We're still seeing it with Lindsay Lohan. Uh, but nobody figured out how to make money the way Charlie did. Nobody was endorsing. True. That's true. Uh, like Charlie was sort of, you know, it's the it's the, the lunatic running the asylum. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was so crazy. Look at them. Yeah, it was so crazy. You would think it was almost scripted, but it wasn't. Well, the fact that he now is, you know, tweeting to give away tickets or tweeting that he's going to a bipolar dinner to support people with a condition, like he's clearly doing some very large-scale, obvious backpedaling. Mm-hmm. 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 You know, saying we're in talks and, you know, I want to go back. And then Warner Brothers immediately shooting back like we're not in any kind of talks and you keep your crazy self off our studio, (laughs) (laughs) off our lot. Oh, absolutely amazing. And and I'm going to tell you right now, at the end of Network, Howard Beatles gets shot. I mean, on live television. So that's clearly not the way Charlie wants to end. No, he doesn't want to go out that way. No, so I'll be very curious to see what his third act at this point is because he's had a second act. His first act was, I'm a young Turk with a lot of talent and I'm going to be a major movie star. And that's, he went that route and and imploded. And then his second was, okay, okay, maybe movies are too much stress for me. All right, I'm going to be a sitcom star. Rose to the top, imploded. And I'm very curious to see what his third act will be. Well, you know, the insight that you have, you know, uh, it it takes a a brilliant mind, but it also takes a a very spiritual mind. And from my many conversations with you, you don't seem to be a very religious person, but you're an extremely spiritual person. Where did that come from? Well, I tell people that for many years, God and I were sort of like, but you know, they always make those buddy cop films, and uh, and he was like the really good buddy, and I was like the the bad cop that ate the donuts and didn't care, and um, and I and I and I think that I've always had an awareness that I had somebody else in the car making sure I didn't harm myself, mm. but I didn't I didn't always give my partner credit, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in a big in a big way, and. You know, as I 
got out of more and more wrecks unscathed, I, you know, decided to just acknowledge, you know what, if you were not in the car, I would so be not here. Mm-hmm. And and that was the evolution. It was just over time I, I got used to him. Like, mm-hmm. he's always been in the car with me. Mm-hmm. I was mm-hmm. just, you know, I, I, I sort of had Catholicism jammed down my throat as a kid, and that never made any sense to me. And I had to, at some point, start to, you know, pull apart the threads in the tapestry that are religion and spirituality and God. And mm-hmm. even though all of those threads are very tightly woven, I was, you know, I, I separated the, the tapestry and took the piece that blankets me. I didn't need the whole tapestry. It was just one piece I needed. And uh, and, and that's what I carry, and that's my mantle, and, and that's my shield, and, and my partner, and everything is, is that, that spirituality. And, and I'm not even remotely religious. I think, you know, I think that most religions put on a nice show, and you know, whatever your religion is, I'm, you know, I'm not knocking it, but it's a good show. And mm-hmm. some people mm-hmm. need to be part of that show to remember, hey, I'm a, I'm a this or I'm a that, you know, mm-hmm. which is fine. Um, I don't, I don't uh, need that. I don't subscribe to that. Well said, and, well said. Yeah, so, and, and it's fine. So what was uh, one of the toughest times for you that you had to push through uh, where you – truly had to acknowledge uh, uh, the big guy in the car uh, next to oh. oh, my goodness. Are you kidding me? Um, he's always been there, but April 11th of 2001, I'm driving in Nebraska, and I'm an idiot because uh, there's a tunnel that is just west of Denver, and when that tunnel is closed, which is very rare, on Interstate 70, I believe it's the Eisenhower, when that tunnel is closed, that basically means bad news bears, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, if that tunnel's closed, bad stuff is happening. I mean, they closed down Denver International, which never happens, you know. So I had to get to Minneapolis, which is across the 70 and up to 35, and I had to get to Minneapolis that night, and I, I thought I was going to drive through the Eisenhower Tunnel, you know, late, and get further than I did. But with the tunnel closed, I ended up staying in a hotel just west of Denver. And I don't even know how many miles that is, but it's like 700-plus, almost 800 miles. Let's just say 700-plus for the sake of this story. That I had to drive to get to my show that night. And I, you know, I called the guy in the morning, and I said, look, I'm really super sorry, but I couldn't get there. I physically couldn't get there. And he said, look, Monique, I'm not going to call off the show. It's in a gay bar, which everybody knows they run late. And um, and second of all, um, we can hold the show and just do your best and keep in touch with me throughout the day. Mm-hmm. Just do your best. Mm-hmm. So I'm driving on the 70, gusts of wind, snowbanks on either side of me, mm. you know, just like really bad, crazy ice trucker conditions. And I don't even know why I'm doing this. I'm just doing it, you know, and uh, just because. And because the way the booker had said, just do your best, I was like, well, okay, I can live with that. Mm-hmm. So I'm driving in, the, in a remote area in past Denver, and a gust of wind sweeps over my car. And I'm in a Toyota 4Runner. I'm not even like in a neon or anything. I'm in a Toyota 4Runner. 
and this gust of wind hits my car so hard that my car picks up speed. If you've ever been driving at 60 and your car starts going faster and you haven't yeah. on the gas, that's really yeah. scary. Yes, it is. And I got blown clean off the highway into a snowbank. Wow. I mean, clean off the highway into a high snowbank. And when I got out of the car to assess my situation, there was a pole, a very, like, a ramrod pole that was sticking up um, about, you know, five feet up uh, that I missed by an inch. I mean, literally an inch. It was right there when I opened my car door and jumped out. It was an inch away from my front, you know, uh, driver's side wheel well. Wow. Now, I don't know what would have happened to me, but I certainly would have been stuck in the snow. I certainly, that would have been a huge wreck, would it have flipped the car, would it, I don't know, but I missed it. And I was able to just going front, back, front, back, front, back, get back onto the highway. And I made the gig that night. Amazing. They held it up, yeah, they held it up, it ran late, they got local comedians to fill. I didn't get there until probably 11 o'clock at night, but I made it. And people cheered when I came into the bar. And I did my first half hour was just my journey to get to them, maybe 40 minutes. I think I did maybe an hour and a half. It was well after midnight. But, you know, that was one of probably 10 or 15 instances on the road where there's no way I couldn't acknowledge that someone was looking after me. Mm Mm-hmm. Amazing. Wow. That that that, uh, gives me goosebumps. That's amazing. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've done 360s in the ice, and my car righted itself and kept going. Mm. I look back at the things I've done to be a a comedian that had nothing to do with even bombing on stage or was your material prepared. Just getting from place to place in my vehicles, in the weather, with my dogs, you know, with bad credit and bald tires and leaving late and, you know, just always trying to stay a step ahead of the gun and pay my bills. Like, I've taken crazy chances. Sure, and, sure. You know, and, and somehow I prevailed. And it's not somehow I prevailed. I know exactly how I prevailed, and I know exactly who was orchestrating it, and it was not me. Well, you, you know, you obviously have um, spiritually grown up uh, as well as chronologically grown up, and in that process, uh, you become uh, what it is that you are uh, supposed to be. Uh, I guess the question in that is, <clears throat> how did relationships uh, in your life uh, change as you began to rapidly evolve? Not well. <laughs> <laughs> really not, not well. Talk to me a little bit about that. <laughs> well... You know, I, I I think that I think in all fairness to the people in my life, everything happens for a reason, and you know we all ended up better than we started for having known each other, mm-hmm. and that you know husbands, boyfriends, uh, but I am I am a different animal, and I can't be a hybrid, and I kept trying to marry sort of, and there's the word is used on purpose, I kept trying to marry my. Hispanic Catholic upbringing and sort of my plan B, you know, in a sitcom you have the A story, the B story, and the runner, and I think my B story was, and she did it all while juggling a family, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. and that 
didn't happen because the A story was everything that we've been talking about since the start of this call. And with the A story that I've chosen for myself, there really wasn't a lot of room for a B story. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's one story. And that story doesn't include, you know, a picket fence and three adorable chubby cheek kids. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, so, see, that's, I think that's wise. I think that is absolute wisdom that uh, you have come to know yourself to the point where you say, you know what? I'm not going to uh, send myself through this mental turmoil and anguish, let alone someone else who, who's invested. Oh, that's the whole thing. You know, so People I think that's phenomenal. Uh, I, I had a friend who he said, can I use that answer? Because people come up to me, and people are rude to women. They're like, have you got a problem? Are you infertile? I mean, people are rude. They ask questions. If you're married and your husband's handsome and you've been married a few years and you don't have kids, people start asking questions. <laughs> so somebody said to me once, they said, don't you like children? And I said, I love them so much that I would not possibly allow myself to screw one up. Mm. And, wow. uh, and my, well yeah, my friend said, that's awesome. He's like, I'm going to use that. I'm like, absolutely. Absolutely. Fantastic. Wow. What an inspiration you are, my dear. What's next for you? What's, you. What do you have percolating? Well, I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you because it's really big and awesome and delicious. Nope. And, nope. Uh, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. <laughs> I don't want to kill you. I want to live. I want to live. <laughs> well, number one, okay, I can tell you one thing is that I am, I am uh, writing a book, and I'm super proud because it took me the longest time. But when you have clarity on what it is you're trying to accomplish, then the doing of it becomes much easier. Mm -hmm. So I didn't want to just write a funny memoir. I, I didn't want to do any of that. I wanted to write something that would be of use to me. So I wrote the ultimate self-help book, which I wrote it to help myself. And in, in the doing of that, it might help other people. Mm -hmm. If nothing else, you know, dredging the lake of my soul for dead bodies has, um, <laughs> has, has shown me certain patterns and, you know, and places where I keep digging when I really need to zag next time. So I, I wrote a book called, I'm writing a book called Smack, Divorced, and Fired, and the subtext is everything I learned when everything I knew failed me. Mm, and, I love that. I'm pretty excited about it. I'm not going to lie to you. I think I that if I, can if I can amortize my misery and mistakes over many, many people, then, boy, isn't that going to be a great value? <laughs> <laughs> turning, pain and, uh, turning pain into pleasure and profit. Yeah, yeah. And then if nothing else, if someone else, like I say, even if they read it and they say, well, that was mildly amusing, and, you know, and, and even if the book is not profitable, which I'm sure, you know, if you sell a few copies, it'll do something. But, but the, the real thing is, like I say, if somebody can, if one person dodges one bad marriage or one bad relationship or one moment of not feeling good enough for something that I wrote, it's like, how great is my karma going to be? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, my dear, I absolutely love you and adore you. And oh, as the book comes out, I can't wait for you to come back on the show and let's talk about it and let's get you in. Uh, let's get you in town and get you on the TV show as well. Hercules. <laughs> That's what I'm really happy. That's one of my favorite scenes of. I mean, those movies don't necessarily amuse me, but that one scene—that's me right there. Hercules. <laughs> Fantastic, my darling. I love you. Thank you so much for being with me today. The pleasure was mine. Thank you.